Growth and innovation. Two words that best describe the ETF industry. However, rapid growth and innovation creates a critical need for financial advisors and industry practitioners, education. Enter the ETF Institute, the first and only independent organization providing industry professionals and financial advisors with certification, education, and training on ETFs. Learn more about the certified ETF advisor designation by visiting CETF.org. ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. Some guests appearing on this program may also be financial sponsors of ETF Prime. The ETF Store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF Store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Jay Jacobs, U.S. Head of Thematic and Active Equity ETFs at BlackRock, who, of course, recently launched the iShares Bitcoin Trust, ticker IBIT, which uh, I, I have to note in less than uh, three weeks, that ETF is already at nearly $2.5 billion in assets. I think a pretty remarkable debut for really most of the spot Bitcoin ETFs. I know there's some debate out there with the flows out of Grayscale's uh, GBTC ETF, but I think it's been an overwhelming success. In any event, Jay and I will discuss the debut of iBit. Uh, we'll find out what BlackRock is hearing from clients on this new ETF. And we'll also briefly touch on the potential role of Bitcoin in a portfolio. We'll then switch gears and spent a few minutes discussing iShares 2024 thematic outlook. Jay authored this, and he has four key takeaways that I'm going to try and distill down for everyone, including one that I think is uh, really key, which, which gets into how investors might think about using thematic ETFs in a portfolio. So I look forward to that conversation. Also joining me this week will be Tom Hancock, head of Focused Equity at GMO, who last November, they launched their first ETF, the GMO U.S. Quality ETF, ticker symbol QLTY, Quality. Uh, this is actively managed by Tom, who has been running their quality mutual fund strategy for uh, a while now. And, of course, GMO is a $60 billion asset manager. So I think it's noteworthy anytime a firm like that enters the ETF space. And so Tom and I will uh, focus on that quality ETF and the quality factor in general and really dive into how Tom is viewing the equity markets overall right now. Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me my absolute favorite energy sector expert, Stacy Morris, who's head of energy research at Vetify. And they are behind two indexes that are powering brand new ETFs, both of which have rather interesting stories wrapped around them, in my opinion. I think you'll see what what I mean here. And both of these are tracking Alarian indexes. You may recall Alarian is under the Vetify umbrella. So let's just get into these with Stacy right now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. 2% of demand versus 1% of demand is, is a pretty big shift. Energy companies have changed a lot. You know, they're generating significant free cash flow. They're buying back their equity. They're offering attractive dividends. Stacy, great having you back on the podcast. It's great to be with you, Nate. Thanks for having me. 
All right. So typically when you're on the podcast, I feel like we take more of a uh, macro look at the energy sector in general. Sometimes we dig a little bit deeper, but usually we don't deal, uh, drill too deeply into individual ETFs. Um, however, that is going to change this week because since we last spoke, there are two new ETFs on the market that are powered by uh, indices under the Vetify umbrella. And so the first ETF is the Texas Capital Texas Oil Index ETF, ticker symbol OILT. This just launched towards the end of November. This tracks the Alarian Texas Weighted Oil and Gas Index. Now, I, I've got to tell you, I have a number of questions on this. But uh, for listeners, why don't we start by having you explain this index? Like, like how exactly is this constructed? Yeah, sure. So um, the index is our Alarian Texas Weighted Oil and Gas Index. And to be eligible for the index, you have to produce oil or gas in Texas. Um, and then the index is weighted based on the economic value of each company's oil and gas production in Texas. Uh, and then there's a 10% cap for individual constituents. So currently the index has 31 names in it. Uh, it reconstitutes annually in March, and then it's rebalanced quarterly. Um, so the main thing is, you know, it's really an index of companies that produce oil and gas in Texas. Yeah, okay, so if if an investor is looking at this, how, how would this index and the ETF compare to something like, say, XLE, the Energy Select Sector Spider ETF, or uh, XOP, the Spider S&P Oil and Gas Exploration and Production ETF? What, what are some of the key differences here? Yeah, so at a high level, um, the underlying index here is more similar to XOP than XLE, but there's some nuances to that. So if you think about XLE, it's really the energy companies in the S&P 500. So it's a smattering of your large energy companies across subsectors. You have majors like Chevron and Exxon. You have refiners, midstream corporations, oil field service names. Um, but XLE's index is weighted based on modified market cap. So um, it really ends up being dominated by Exxon and Chevron, even though it has you know, 23 constituents. So I'm sure I probably mention this every time we talk, but XLE is about 40% Exxon and Chevron. So relative to you know, XLE or its underlying index, the index for um, OILT is going to give you pure exposure to oil and gas producers and less concentrated exposure to the majors. So for the underlying index here, Exxon and Chevron combined are less than 12% of the index by weighting. Um, so uh, less concentrated, more focus on producers. Um, and, and in that, you know, you have generally kind of more exposure to what's happening with oil and gas prices. Now, if you look at XOP, you know, it's, um, you know, build is being focused on oil and gas exploration and production companies. Um, its index is equal weighted. It has 54 constituents. But the index includes companies that are not oil and gas producers or that are not focused on exploration production. I mean, if you look at the top five holdings right now, four of them are independent refiners. Um, there's some clean fuel companies in the underlying index for XOP. So, you know, XOP is, is focused on producers, but you also have a bunch of companies in there that are not oil and gas producers. So, Relative to XOP, OLP would give you your pure exposure to companies that are producers. There's no refiners in the index. Um, and so it, it's, again, kind of giving you pure exposure to the producers and, therefore, better exposure to what's happening with oil and gas prices. Well, let, let me ask you this. Um, if we put some of those differences aside, what are some of the advantages of investing strictly in Texas oil and that gas Producers, And I, I guess I would say along with that, is there any downside to limiting the index and, and investment uh, universe and OILT, OILT to, to only companies within Texas? Or is that where most of the best oil and in, in, in production uh, or exploration and production companies are headquartered anyway? Yeah, so there's definitely an element of you know, most large producers have some kind of footprint in Texas, and, and for good reason, and we can talk about that. Um, so just to be clear, you have to be an oil or gas producer in Texas to be in the index, but a lot of these companies are producing you know, oil and gas in the U.S. and other parts of the world. But I think Texas is a good gating factor. 
um, because it has a lot of desirable qualities from a production standpoint. You know, there's really solid geology in Texas. There's significant proved reserves. Um, you have about five shale plays that touch portions of Texas. There's a pretty friendly regulatory environment, um, plenty of infrastructure kind of above the ground to get hydrocarbons where they need to be. Um, you've got good connectivity into both kind of domestic demand and also international markets. So there's a lot to like about Texas production in general, and we see that with M&A transactions that we've seen in the energy space. You know, producers are really focused on securing low-cost, short-cycle driveling inventory. And so if you look at M&A deals in the energy space recently, a lot of those have been focused on essentially giving people more exposure to that low-cost, short-cycle drilling inventory in Texas. So the kind of big example is Exxon buying Pioneer. You've also had Occidental buying a private company called Crown Rock. Um, Apache recently announcing that it's acquiring Callan Petroleum. Um, so these M&A transactions that we've seen recently kind of reinforce the desirability of that Texas production and kind of what makes it special, if you will. Yeah, I saw in a uh, recent piece you wrote where I, I think you made the comparison to just real estate in general, where you said it's location, location, location. And that holds true here. Uh, you know, when you look at Texas as a market to extract and produce uh, oil, and I think you hit on some of those key items that, that do make it desirable in terms of the geology and, and the drilling inventory, the infrastructure, you know, the regulatory in, environment. I know you mentioned the proximity to end markets. Uh, it's interesting because as we talk about every time you're on, I'm no energy sector uh, expert. And so I love digging into stuff like this because it is eye-opening just to better understand the markets. I guess, I guess on that point, you know, as I was looking at the fact sheet for uh, OILT, one of sort of the selling points is that this index uh, underlying the ETF offers exposure to production of West Texas Intermediate. And uh, again, for us energy sector uh, novices out there, what what is the difference between West, Te- uh, West Texas Intermediate and then other types of crude oil? I would say just at a high level. We don't need to get into the weeds here. <laughs> I, well, I just feel yeah. like um, I see people throwing around that WTI acronym. And my sense is most people probably can't explain the difference between you know that and other uh, grades of crude. So, so what is the difference? Yeah. Well, you know, broadly, there's probably over 100 types of crude oil in the world. And I think people don't realize that at all because all they may hear about is WTI, to your point, or, or maybe Brent. Um, but WTI is priced at Cushing, Oklahoma. Um, it's what you'll see quoted for U.S. oil prices. And WTI is good quality. It's what we call light, sweet crude. Um, And what that means in English is that it's lower density and it doesn't have a lot of sulfur. So what that means is that it's relatively easy to refine into things like gasoline, diesel. Um, And broadly, WTI is fairly similar to Brent. You know, people hear about Brent because it tends to be kind of the the global or the European um, light, sweet benchmark. So just to be clear and and maybe not confuse people, but... um, you know, not all the crude produced in Texas is WTI, and you can also have WTI that wasn't produced in West Texas. So there's some weird nuances there, but think of WTI as really like the light, sweet benchmark. Um, and as long as the crude meets that quality spec and it's in the right place, then it's you know, considered to be WTI. Um, I, I want to talk about that other Alarian index here in a moment, but I guess while we're on this topic of, of oil, I know last time you and I talked, that was in November, uh, you gave a quick preview of oil in 2024. And I would say, Stacy, your view was um, maybe maybe a bit lackluster or even downtrodden. I think you felt like there was a floor on oil prices, but maybe not a tremendous amount of upside. I, I'm just curious, is that still your overall sentiment here? Yeah, I mean, I think OPEC Plus is still going to defend a floor, um, but you've also got supply coming on from non-OPEC producers, and that probably keeps a lid on prices, um, even with acknowledging that there's a lot of geopolitical risk right now in the world. Um, but you have so much production that's kind of on the sideline because of these cuts um, that that means there's essentially more spare capacity just kind of sitting there, and I think that also kind of creates an overhang. Um, in terms of the upside to prices. But if you look so far this year through January 29th, WTI is up 
over 7%, about $77 per barrel this morning after being down about 11% last year. So we've seen some strength lately, um, and you know, I could definitely be wrong, um, but I think most people are generally kind of of the view that oil is probably going to be pretty range-bound this year um, and are expecting prices to kind of average between you know, $70 to $80 per barrel. And I think generally, given what we know today um, and what looks to be a pretty comfortably supplied oil market, I think that's tough to argue with. Now, there could be upside from some kind of geopolitical risk that maybe we don't know about or a situation that we already have gets worse. But generally speaking, I think most people just expect oil to kind of continue meandering in this range that it's been. To your point on the geopolitical um, situation, again, I I think the average uh, investor or energy sector novice such as myself might look at everything going on in the Middle East and think perhaps – that could uh, create some upside pressure on oil prices. But does it come back to that supply side? I mean, is that just very high level? Is that what the issue is in terms of oil prices, just the, the too much supply? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen so far is that there hasn't been a, a huge inter- interruption in kind of global oil flows to this point. And so that's kind of one issue why the Middle East issues haven't been a bigger deal. Um, and then you've also got, yeah, non-OPEC supply coming on in places like Guyana, Canada, the U.S. that are not kind of in that mix, are not going to be impacted by what's going on in the Middle East. So I think it's that combination. And, and yeah, to your point, just there should be enough supply elsewhere, um, you know, barring something really escalating uh, in the Middle East. Supply, particularly in Texas, right? (laughs) Um, You you know, you did a great job earlier of highlighting how that that index underlying OILT might offer some benefits relative to competing indices. But to to what you were just saying, let's say oil does not do much this year. I have to assume that's not a great thing for energy stocks overall, right? Like if oil prices don't rise won't that be a, a headwind for, uh, for for all energy stocks, regardless of where uh, the company is headquartered? Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I think um, what's frustrating about the energy space is that companies are doing all the right things. They're generating free cash flow. They're buying back their equity. They're paying dividends. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, oil still tends to be kind of in the driver's seat for equities. And I think oil tends to be kind of what determines whether generalist investors and kind of a broader audience are, are interested in the space. So to the extent that we see kind of weakness in oil, I think it's tougher for energy stocks broadly to do well, and it becomes more of a stock picker's backdrop um, where you have some winners and you have some losers. Now that said, you know, an index like the one underlying oil tea could benefit from M&A activity if constituents are targets and, you know, they're getting a premium um, and, and being acquired. So that's kind of another element that could be a, a potential positive catalyst, despite what may be going on with oil prices. Um, but if, in general, you know, if people are more optimistic on the commodity, um, either near term or long term, then an ETF like oil tea is going to give you um, kind of a better way to play that commodity. <coughs> I, I know in the past, um, Stacy, we've talked about how, let, let's say there is continued weakness in oil and just energy stocks overall. You've continued to point to the, the midstream companies, the MLPs um, in, in the energy space. And on that note, the other product that just launched that's powered by uh, an Alarian index is the Alarian MLP index ETN, ticker symbol AMJB. Do you want to uh, briefly comment on that? And I'd love to have you maybe just expand a little bit about or on how MLPs might be able to uh, perform better than the broader energy sector if, let's say, again, oil prices are muted. Yeah, so the underlying index for AMJB is our Illyrian MLP index, ticker ANZ. Um, it's really the leading benchmark for MLPs, and it was the first real-time MLP index, Um this index has been around since 2006, um, and it's you know, focused on energy infrastructure MLPs. It's weighted by float-adjusted market cap uh, with a 10% cap for individual names. And you know what we've seen in the MLP space you know, over the last several years is, is really solid performance. I mean, the AMZ has outperformed the S&P 500 um, for the last 
three straight years. Um, so last year, you know, oil was down about 11%. Um, the underlying index for AMJB was up about 26%. So this is a space that tends to be less correlated to what's happening with the commodity um, because companies are providing services for a fee and they tend to be more defensive. Um, we've also seen some tailwinds for this space from M&A activity. Um, so for investors who are you know, looking for income or, you know, maybe are just a little more cautious on what's happening with the commodity price environment, uh, the midstream MLP space is, is certainly a, a good place to look. Um, and what's nice is that you have options there in terms of how you access the space. So um, for an investor who's um, you know, looking for an ETF vehicle, there's the Alarian MLP ETF, which we provide the index for. It's the largest, most liquid MLP-focused MLP ETF, but then you also have you know, AMJB and the exchange-traded note wrapper, um, and that tends to be more geared for investors who are investing in a tax-efficient account. Um, otherwise, as an ETN, your coupon is going to be taxed at an ordinary income rate, so generally you want to own something like an ETN in a tax-advantaged account. But without getting into too much detail, um, you know, we definitely like the midstream and MLP space in this kind of backdrop where you don't necessarily have a lot of catalysts from a commodity price standpoint. Um, and, you know, we continue to see the space benefiting from kind of the tailwinds of free cash flow that we've seen for the last, you know, three or four years. So um, you feel really good about the midstream space in this type of environment. Well, Stacy, I am going to keep saying this uh, every time you're on the podcast. Nobody covers the energy sector better than you do, period. I always love our conversations. I, I think especially because I always learn something new. Uh, really enjoy this. Thank you for joining me this week. No, thank you so much for having me, Nate, and thanks for bearing with me with this uh, cold I have. Uh, great conversation. That was Stacy Morris, head of energy research at Vetify. <laughs> I'm now joined by Jay Jacobs, U.S. Head of Thematic and Active Equity ETFs at BlackRock. Of course, BlackRock is the largest ETF issuer in the world. And here in the U.S., they currently offer over 400 ETFs, nearly $2.6 trillion in assets. That includes the recently launched iShares Bitcoin Trust, ticker IBIT, I-B-I-T, along with a growing suite of both thematic and active equity ETFs. And Jay is now on the line with me from New York. Jay, always uh, great to connect. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Nate. Great to be back here. All right. I have to start by asking you, how did it feel to go viral on uh, Twitter or X a couple of weeks ago with that uh, ad on the iShares Bitcoin Trust? I I got the biggest kick out of this. You were literally everywhere. Did that catch you off guard? Uh, it was a little surreal. I was actually walking with my wife and son in Central Park and, uh, you know, did my usual glance at my phone and my heart probably skipped a beat when I saw hundreds of notifications on Twitter. But, um, you know, uh, all, all good. I think it really represents the pent up demand for the Bitcoin ETF. You know, this is something that people have been waiting for for years. Uh, I know, Nate, you've been waiting for it for years, and so the reality of these products coming out and, and iBit making some market just made an incredible splash, and, and investors were really passionate about following the launch. Yeah, for uh, listeners who missed this ad, I, I think it was on a Sunday, I uh, popped open Twitter, and, and I'm telling you, Jay was everywhere. I, I think somebody in the crypto space with a large following must have gotten a hold of this thing, and tweeted it out, and then it just caught fire. And, and Jay, if you don't mind, let me play a, a quick snippet from this. Digital asset adoption has significantly accelerated over the past decade, with profound implications for the future of finance. Bitcoin is the original cryptocurrency to gain global adoption and has continued to maintain its dominance, despite thousands of others coming into existence. You might have noticed Bitcoin make its way into our everyday lives, from Bitcoin ATMs to various merchants accepting Bitcoin as payment, further driving interest in what the future holds for the cryptocurrency. Investors have taken notice, as in institutions and individual investors alike have been adopting Bitcoin into their investment portfolios. 
with some viewing it as a potential store of value and others as a potential game changer in how money moves around the world. But for many investors, holding Bitcoin directly can be complex. That's why we launched iBit, the iShares Bitcoin Trust, an ETF that provides investors convenient exposure to Bitcoin. Here are three things to know about iBit. Access. iBit enables investors to access Bitcoin within a traditional brokerage account, just like stocks, bonds, and other ETFs. Convenience. iBit can help remove operational burdens associated with trading and holding Bitcoin directly, as well as potentially high trading costs and tax reporting complexities. Quality. iBit is built by BlackRock, a leading ETF firm with expertise across ETFs and a history of innovation. It is a new day for Bitcoin. Access iBit through your online brokerage or discuss with your financial planner to find out how iBit can fit into your portfolio. Visit www.ishares.com to view a prospectus, which includes... All right. So so everybody gets the idea here. Um, I think that was like, what, two minutes long overall. How, how many takes did that, uh, did that take you to get that recorded? <laughs> I, I don't remember. It was. I, I think it's pretty straightforward. But we had, I think, about two million views of the video, so it, it definitely made its way around Twitter. That's for sure. All right. Well, we'll get a few thousand more for you here on uh, on ETF Prime. <laughs> okay. So um, I checked this morning, Jay. IBIT is already at nearly two and a half billion dollars in assets. That's been done in yeah. less than three weeks. Uh, this ETF also leads the other eight new entrants into this category. So how, how would you gauge the initial response to this launch? It's been tremendous. Uh, you know, the, the assets and the volume uh, speak for, for the fund itself. But, you know, the reality is there was a lot of pent-up demand for a Bitcoin ETF. You know, like I said, people have been waiting years for this. And there's a lot of investors out there who already have done their research on Bitcoin and have decided to get exposure but maybe we're doing so with, um, you know, not the perfect vehicle for them. Maybe they were doing it through futures. Maybe they were owning Bitcoin directly. Maybe they were using other vehicles. But they have been waiting for the ETF because of the convenience and access that it provides. And so once iBit came live, uh, you know, there were a lot of people ready to, to move into the fund quickly. But I would say the longer opportunity is really for people who are just starting that educational journey around Bitcoin we know it's going to take a while to understand this nascent asset class, to understand how it could interact with other pieces of a portfolio. And that's, you know, we're really just kind of at, at stage one for many investors there. As it pertains to the flows, I know a lot is being made about uh, the outflows from the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust and how maybe the inflows into the new spot Bitcoin ETFs are, I, I, I don't know, essentially just recycled money from that, that there's not real new organic demand here. I, I, I don't agree with that, but I, I'm curious how you might respond to that. And maybe you can offer some additional insight. You, you, you alluded to it, but just some additional insight into what BlackRock is actually hearing from clients uh, on this ETF. No, it's, it's, it's a tremendous range of interest from, I would say, the end investor space, who now has kind of this really great access tool that previously they didn't have a, you know, a, a great way to get direct exposure to Bitcoin. Um, as well as more sophisticated investors who've just been waiting for the right structure. So, you know, the range of people that we are hearing from around this product is as wide as you could imagine. And again, you know, people are at different stages of that journey. So some people are moving quickly. Other people, you know, this could be a month's or years long journey if, if they ever allocate to Bitcoin. But now that it's in the ETF world, they are at least kind of starting the educational journey around uh, the asset. All right. Before we move on here, because I do want to get to your uh, thematic outlook just high level, how is BlackRock suggesting investors think about Bitcoin in a portfolio? And, and let me caveat that with, with the usual uh, disclaimer that obviously every investor is different. Everybody has different goals. So we're not here offering investment advice. But if you were just to generalize, what is the potential role of Bitcoin in a portfolio? Well, the, I think the most important thing is, is just that, that this is not a one-size-fits-all uh, asset. There are people who will want exposure to it, and it makes sense. There are people who will not want exposure to it, and it wouldn't make sense on their portfolio. You know, just as everyone should do due diligence on stocks and bonds, they have to do the same level of due diligence on Bitcoin and understand kind of what it means to add it to a portfolio. Um, you know, I, I would say there's kind of common use cases that we hear from clients around, 
you know, this can be used as a hedge against monetary or geopolitical risk, more of that digital store of value use case. There's others who see it as really a play on greater adoption of Bitcoin itself and, and greater use cases for blockchain technology. Um, but really, it, it, it needs to be tailored to every individual investor to decide if and how they allocate to this asset. Yeah, well, I'm telling you from my perspective, I think this will continue to be really interesting to watch. Uh, once again, I think a highly successful initial debut. And uh, it, again, it'll just be interesting to see how this evolves. Um, all right, let's now pivot and and touch on your 2024 thematic outlook. I, I'll tell you, I really enjoyed reading this. And there, there were four key takeaways that you presented. If you don't mind, let me quickly go through these and then we can get into some detail here. So number one, you said that given the macroeconomic backdrop with higher rates and uh, more volatility, you said investors need to demand greater compensation for taking on equity risk. And a way that they can do that is by getting more precise about investment exposure. So really targeting specific themes. So that's number one. Number two, you noted the transformation of artificial intelligence from concept to commercialization, which uh, I actually talked about that last week, how it feels like perhaps we're past that initial buzz we saw earlier in 2023 with uh, chat uh-huh. GBT, right, and those sorts of things. And now the real work is being done. It's about real adoption. And you talk about how the potential investment opportunity here, especially if you move beyond the largest tech companies involved in the space, uh, you know, could be compelling. So that was the second takeaway. And then quickly here, the other two takeaways you mentioned uh, are a new era for medical innovation and the rewiring of globalization. So, So basically how uh, geopolitical dynamics are shifting supply chains, and, and we're seeing a move towards reshoring and, and nearshoring. Um, mm-hmm. let, let, let's start with that first takeaway on investors needing to demand greater compensation for taking on equity risk, because from my perspective, that obviously gets into how investors might best use thematic ETFs in a portfolio. And so I'd, I'd love to have you offer a quick framework here, because you seem to be suggesting investors need to get more nimble with their thematic mm-hmm. exposure. So, so how, how do they do that? Well, you know, from a high level, there's really two issues investors are facing when they think about equities, which is first, people are getting paid 5% to hold cash. So that's a pretty high bar to clear. You want to exceed that if you're going to take equity market risk. And then the second piece is markets are volatile right now, and there's a lot of macroeconomic uncertainty. So volatility is higher. And that means that with higher cash rates and higher volatility, you really need to be confident you're investing to see that you're going to get the return that you're looking for over the long run. If we go back over the last 10 years, you know, it was really a Goldilocks period where just owning broad market benchmarks drove a lot of returns for investors, and we don't think that's going to continue. It's really about getting more precise exposure through thematic investing, through active investing, or looking at things like sectors and subsectors. So I think the way to think about this for investors is this means focusing on the satellites in your portfolio, not just broad market allocations, but getting targeted in where there's long-term growth opportunities. Yeah, I like the comment you made where you said just because you're exposed to the Magnificent Seven, which, of course, if you look at the the composition of those companies and what they're involved in, you do have quite a bit of AI exposure. Um, but that doesn't mean you're you're well exposed to thematic growth. And I, I thought that was a good point. And then the other uh, item that, that caught my attention, you said you need to look for long-term structural trends with near-term mm-hmm. catalysts, which I think gets into being a bit more nimble uh, around thematics. Um, if, if we look at those other three takeaways you highlighted, um, you, you know, those are potential areas of opportunity you see in 2024. Again, the, the adoption of artificial intelligence, the new era of medical innovation, and then this uh, supply chain reorientation. Do, do you want to comment on any or, or all of those? Well, I, I think one theme that kind of touches on all of them is really rewired supply chains. So this is something that's been building for over a decade. You've seen, uh, you know, going back to the global financial crisis, uh, you know, greater questioning of globalization. You saw more tariffs in the last few years. You've seen COVID. All really building towards uh, a new a wave approaching supply chains that is focused on resilience and control. And so you've seen uh, policies in the United States like the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, basically bringing tens or hundreds of billions of dollars into building things in the United States to set us up for the next stage of growth. 
And why is this important? Well, first, you have really important technologies that are emerging, like artificial intelligence, where the United States wants to be the world leader. The second is you have aging populations where we are going to create probably about four to five million jobs over the next decade versus the 20 million we created the last decade. So that presents a real challenge from a who's going to build all these things. And then you have a third piece of it, which is who do we partner with on the international stage to help supply these industries? Where we've seen countries like Mexico that can do, uh, you know, really uh, close nearshoring, countries like India that have very youthful populations and expertise in technology are really becoming the new partners of the future. So uh, AI and demographics and geopolitics are all kind of wrapped together in this thematic outlook, and you're seeing it play out in real time in, in how we're thinking about supply chains going forward. Okay, so if investors are interested in playing this uh, rewiring of globalization, are there a, a handful of iShares ETFs you might point to? And again, for listeners, not investment advice, do your own homework. I'm just curious, Jay, as to some of the potential ways to play this nearshoring or, or friendshoring trend. And I, I guess along with that, you mentioned countries such as Mexico and, and India. Mm-hmm. And I don't think most investors would consider, say, a country play is a thematic play, but but could it be in this type of situation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you have to look at country funds as a way to play some of these demographic and uh, rewiring supply chain themes. Um, you know, we're seeing it in the youthfulness of countries like Mexico and India. We're seeing it in these political relationships. So, you know, single countries maybe in the past are not viewed thematically, but I think in this uh, world we, we, we have to. So, you know, a couple of tickers, you know, IRBO is our robotics and AI fund. EWW is our Mexico fund, INBA is our India fund, and we're seeing, you know, significant interest in those ETFs, you know, given the themes that are playing out this year. Jay, just a few minutes left here before I let you go. I'm actually going to switch gears on you yet again here. Uh, we're, we're covering a diverse range of topics this week. Um, I actually had your colleague Rachel Aguirre on the podcast a few months ago after the launch of the um, iShares Buffer ETFs. And, you know, with thematics, we're talking about more granular ways to play offense. But if you think about those buffer ETFs, those could be considered more granular ways to play defense. And I'm just curious if you want to comment on those buffer ETFs and just the type of response BlackRock has seen to those products thus far. We've seen a great response, and a lot of it is tied to some of the same reasons that we were talking about granularity and thematic, which is there's so much money on the sidelines. There's $6 trillion being held in money market and cash funds right now that investors are hesitant, and they either need to find really compelling growth opportunities like these powerful themes, or they need to kind of inch back into the markets in a way that they can feel, uh, you know, uh, protected in a sense if there's going to be a major market sell-off. And so that's where we've seen interest in these buffer ETFs, which essentially provide a measure of protection against downside movements in exchange for capping uh, upside returns. And we've seen uh, a good amount of interest in people moving to cash into buffers as a way to kind of regain equity exposure in a measured way. Yeah, and a couple of uh, tickers there for listeners. Um, IVVM, which is the iShares Large Cap Moderate Buffer ETF, and then IVVB, which is the iShares Large Cap Deep Buffer ETF. But, Jay, we're going to have to leave it there. I always enjoy uh, connecting. I'm going to be waiting for you to go viral on another uh, iBit. (laughs) I'm going to be looking for that. But thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot, Nate. Great to talk. That was Jay Jacobs, U.S. Head of Thematic and Active Equity ETFs at BlackRock. Calling all financial advisors. Get ready to boost your practice, portfolios, and network at the Exchange Conference, happening in sunny Miami from February 11th to the 14th, 2024. At Exchange, you'll gain valuable insights to grow your practice and sharpen your investment acumen with the top investment experts. But that's not all. By attending, you can earn over 10 CE credits and join a network that goes beyond business. Join a community that's dedicated to your success. Learn more and register now at exchangeetf.com. Joined by Tom Hancock, head of focused equity at GMO, who last November launched their first ETF, 
It's the GMO U.S. Quality ETF, ticker symbol QLTY. Tom is the portfolio manager on that ETF. He's actually been running their flagship quality mutual fund strategies for years now. And as I noted at the top, GMO is a $60 billion asset manager who has now entered the ETF space. And uh, Tom is on the line with me from Boston. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nate. It's great to be here. All right. So anytime I see a prominent asset manager enter the ETF space, I'm always very curious about the uh, decision-making process uh, around this. So what did that look like for GMO? Why get involved with ETFs now? Yeah. Um, it's something we've been thinking about for a while, and this felt like the right time to us. So GMO, as you know, we're $60 billion asset manager, but the large bulk of our clients are institutional, so large pension funds, endowments, and such. Uh, we haven't really had that much until more recently investment from investment advisors, high net worth, tax-sensitive investors, basically. That's, but that has been a very growing part of our market. It's an area where we and Jeremy Grantham are known. And for that market segment, the tax advantages of ETFs became really important. And then the other thing that we observed going on is that in the early days of the ETF market, ETFs were just not by necessity, but just branding, I guess, associated much more with passive or purely quantitative strategies. But in recent years, active fundamental strategies are starting to gain some traction in the ETF market. So both to suit our clients better because we felt our the time was right for our kind of strategy last year was the year we chose to launch. All right. So let's talk about the ETF itself, the GMO U.S. Quality ETF. Again, this is actively managed by you. Obviously, this seeks to invest in high-quality stocks. Uh, take us through your process here. How, how are you screening for quality? Yeah. Um, and first, quality is about companies that can deliver a high return on investment going forward. They have growth opportunities that the average company does. They have moats to keep other comp companies from getting in. Um, that's kind of qualitatively what we're looking for. But uh, quantitatively, we do start our process with screening. We're looking for companies that have a history of high profitability, stable profitability, strong balance sheets. We believe those kind of companies, um, for the most part, can keep those characteristics going forward and deserve a premium. Uh, so we start with the screening. The next steps of our process are the fundamental part. So one is, okay, this looks like a good candidate company. Why has it had this profitability? Do we think it will continue to do so in the future? What's the business model? Do we trust management, et cetera? And then secondly, but also very importantly, is valuation. It's just not just a great business, but just to say a great stock, you know, a great business at a reasonable price. I pulled up your um, top holdings th this morning. If you don't mind, let me go through these briefly. So I see Microsoft, which as an aside, of course, that company hit $3 trillion in market cap last week. Pretty remarkable. Uh, there's also United Health Group, Alphabet, Johnson & Johnson, uh, and Oracle. And then rounding out the top 10 are Accenture, Meta, Amazon, Apple, and Abbott Laboratories. I'd love to have you maybe just pick one of those, Tom, and explain your rationale for owning it using the, uh, the, the quality lens. Yeah. Um, and I think most of those companies are somewhat household names, and you'd see there's a mix, as, um, as, as we like to invest, a mix between sort of more tech growth-oriented companies and more sort of classic defensive-type names, all of which we think are, are quality. The big one, you know, Accenture, that's sort of a big IT consulting company. I think that's kind of interesting because it gives you a way to play the artificial intelligence theme without having to pick winners, if you will. Um, so Accenture, we like it and held it for years. It's an asset-like business that basically benefits from the migration of new technology innovation out of companies like Microsoft and Alphabet into the broader economy. If you're a energy company, a big financial company, you want to um, use an Oracle database, you want to get cloud computing, or now you want to use artificial intelligence. Accenture is the company you go to to do it for you. And, of course, it's a little bit out of the limelight there, so it's not as hyped up as some of the other companies. But because of their brand and intellectual capacity, uh, capabilities and scale, it's really hard for a smaller entrance to compete with them. You mentioned some of the uh, hype around some of the other uh, companies, and I think there are some investors who – 
might have a concern around the valuations of those companies. If you look at the Magnificent Seven and, and, and you know, similar types of companies, how does valuation specifically fit into your investment process? Like, let's say you have a company that is at the very top of the list from a, a quality standpoint, when you look at you know both a, a quantitative and, and, and fundamental assessment, um, but perhaps the valuation overall is out of whack. What, what's your framework around that? Yeah. So our framework is that for any company we're holding or considering holding, we're going to come up with a model of how, what that company can grow at, share cash, double return to shareholders, and exit multiple years down the road. And we'll come up with a price target. And, um, you know, great companies don't come at huge discounts, right? But you don't want to pay huge premiums for them because then even if they deliver great growth, likely the multiple will compress over time and you won't get a great return. So there are certainly companies that are near the top of the quality list that we don't hold purely on valuation. Video would be the most obvious company out there in the news today. Or if you think of like a, a Costco would be another one where we don't really see how they can grow into their multiple. Um, that is a differentiator between us and some quality approaches that are just about the quality of the business and don't pay it all, any attention at all to the stock price. Regarding the active management here, you know, you noted earlier that historically, I think ETFs have been associated with uh, with passive, but that's changing. I think active ETFs are obviously a huge growth area within the industry right now. I, I think that's going to continue to be the case. But I, I want to ask you sort of the uh, cliche question around active, mm-hmm. which is that Look, Tom, everyone has seen the data on the challenges active managers face in outperforming their benchmarks, right? It's extremely difficult to consistently outperform. So how do you view your ability to add value here? And perhaps you can uh, just make the case for active overall, because as you're well aware, there are plenty of index-based quality ETFs on the market. So as an investor, why go active? Well, of course, you'll see mathematical truth that in aggregate the market is active investors so in aggregate the market return is the market return so it's kind of an average everyone's average and then uh that fees underneath so there's a certain truth you can't avoid there i think where active management can add value is keeping you out of trouble i think it's been tough for the last few years because the market's been so concentrated in a few names uh, but passive, just by following market cap rating, I think does put you at a little bit more risk when t- things turn sour. And I think active management generally has done a little bit better in the downturn. I think that's particularly true of our style of active management with a focus on quality and valuation. If you think about passive, it's not just the S&P 500, but if you also think about, in our neighborhood, I guess, quality-type factor um, approaches, I think the things we would bring on top of that are – one, the forward-looking approach, so trying to avoid those quality traps, if you will, companies that have had a great history, but the world's changing and their future won't be as bright going forward. That's one. And the other advantage would be that valuation. A lot of the sort of naive quality implementations, because they don't care about valuation, I don't think you use good returns, certainly aren't as defensive. And you saw that in the down market in 2022 when not all kind of quality strategies were as defensive as I think their investors hoped they would be. By the way, earlier I mentioned the quality mutual fund you, you run. How similar is that to the ETF strategy? Yeah, the mutual fund, GQETX, GMO Quality Fund, um, it's quite similar, same team, same philosophy and process. The only difference is that does have global exposure, so it's had up to 20% of its weight in non-U.S. domiciled multinationals. So the, uh, the ETF we've started is purely a U.S. quality, so it holds all the U.S. stocks in the in the mutual fund and then holds a handful of other names and the weights are a little bit different, but very similar. All right, just a, uh, a few minutes left here. With our remaining time, Tom, I would love to hear your thoughts around the current market environment right now, where we have the S&P 500 at record highs. Mm-hmm. We have short-term treasury rates still around, what, 5.5%. I would say the economy looks pretty good overall. So how are you thinking bigger picture, and, and, and where does quality fit into that mm-hmm. right now? Yeah. Yeah, well, like, um, I think it's big picture. We think about quality investing is a good way to invest for people who aren't trying to forecast the economy and not a portfolio that's kind of robust whatever happens. If one thing, specific thing happens, your quality will be okay. But uh, there may be something else that, oh, 
uh, better to invest. But in terms of diversifying yourself and being well protected against the unexpected, I think that's where quality comes into play. Um, interest rates, I think, a lot depends on what happens with inflation in the economy. If it's a recessionary, bad economy, drives interest rates lower. Uh, that's relatively speaking good for quality. If it's a boom up in cyclicals, and we're not really forecasting, but that would be the kind of period where a quality strategy can hopefully keep up but lag a little bit. Um, to the extent that interest rates are just reflecting inflation, the quality companies have strong pricing power. We're not that worried about an inflationary environment. Uh, companies tend to benefit from that actually over time, if anything. So um, we're, we're not too worried about the macro, but we also don't really take macro that much into account in our investing process. So on the valuation point, I think the market has the S&P 500 has great companies in it with better growth prospects than average. Innovation has never been higher. I think in aggregate, the market just deserves a higher multiple than straight out historically. If I were to summarize that, you know, look, if an investor is considering the quality factor, assuming there's a good framework here, as you've discussed around valuations, is it fair to say that quality will keep up well enough in up markets but then more than compensate when markets hit the downside? Is that fair just at a high level if yeah. there's a good quality Yeah, that's, that's, that would be our belief, certainly. It's kind of you win in quality by never falling too far behind and then really burning your salt when, uh, when things turn south. Well, Tom, we're going to have to leave it there. A, uh, a pleasure to connect this week. I certainly wish you continued success on the quality strategies and uh, th- this new ETF. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. It's been great to talk. That was Tom Hancock, head of Focused Equity at GMO. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, ER Shares. If you would like to learn more about the ER Shares Entrepreneurs ETF or the ER Shares Next Gen Entrepreneurs ETF, you can visit entrepreneurshares.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Joanna Gallagos, co founder of Bond Block. So, we're going to talk about their recent ETF launches and really their overall approach to bond ETFs. And then Greg Tuorto, Portfolio Manager at Goldman Sachs, will spotlight their actively managed small cap core equity ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.